Okay, let's, um, let's open a word of prayer. Lord, uh, thank you for this day. We pray that you'll bless our time together today and pray that you'll uh, help us to kind of weed through the just enormous pile of things that are go- that's going on in the world that's prophetically significant. Bless us today in Jesus' name, amen. <clears throat> well, today I'm going to call this Converging on the Accelerator. Uh, you know, as I go through a lot of things during the course of a week, I'm continually amazed at the uh, at the things that I see. It's just um, it's unbelievable. I'm trying to find an article here. Actually, I've, well, I'll never get to it anyway. So I'm not going to throw it away like I threw my paper away last week. It's, I'll get yelled at for that one. <clears throat> Uh, anyway, so a lot of things that we have going on. Just a reminder that uh, generative AI was not used in the research or preparation of this update. Uh, we talk, again, as I noted in the title, about the convergence of events. And we live at this time. So I'm going to go through some stuff regarding AI. I'm going to go through some stuff regarding the war in Ukraine. But some of that's related to AI. Then I'm going to talk a little bit about Israel, big issue in Israel, and also the relationship between Israel and Iran. Um, and if you think, and you think I'm going to get all that done, that's that's my goal. Uh, I see that it's not uh, really going to happen. Uh, again, this is sort of the uh, sort of this is the grid that I use. Uh, acceleration, convergence, logistics, understanding that as we get closer in time, we'll have a better understanding. You remember this is this phrase or this saying from Vladimir Lenin, um, not that he's uh, quoting scripture, but there are decades where nothing happens and there are weeks where decades happen. Remember that quote that I've used a number of times from one of Hemingway's books, the Two of the characters in the book were having a conversation, and the question was, how did you go bankrupt? And the guy says, I went bankrupt two ways, gradually, then suddenly. And I think that's a little bit, and again, not that Hemingway is scripture, but it's a good point that when these things happen in Bible prophecy, they happen gradually, and sometimes it's hard to see them happening, and then all of a sudden, boom, they're there. Uh, so this is the verse that we use a lot in um, from Daniel chapter 12. Oh Lord, what shall be the end of these things? And he said, go thy way, Daniel, for the words are closed up and sealed till the time of the end. Many shall be purified and made white and tried, but the wicked shall do wickedly and none of the wicked shall understand but the wise shall understand and in daniel 11 it also talks about and i did a sermon on this a few weeks ago on the masculine and that the wise will instruct many so we we want to be part of the wise now uh since i haven't gotten myself in enough trouble with regard to what's going on at asbury just let me make a couple more comments uh, last week I was a bit down, as some people noted, and part of that was because not so much somewhat attacks on me, but attacks on people who were like, okay, let's take a wait and see on Asbury 
or here are some areas of concern. And I have to tell you that uh, whatever concerns I had last week only got worse this week. Uh, as people, um, and, I, and it's, I don't remember if I talked about this last week or not. I don't usually pay attention to myself, so um, that people thought, well, if you have any questions or you're not fully on board, you're quenching the spirit. Like somebody sitting in their computer room, you know, thinking about this or talking about it from a pulpit at a tiny church in Ohio is going to shut down the Holy Spirit of God if it's a true move of God. This is, this is absolute ludicrous that people would even say such a thing. It doesn't make any sense, folks. Now, they've, they've, stopped, that, uh, they've stopped it at uh, Asbury, is my understanding. There's some other colleges and universities uh, that are reporting uh, some things that are happening. And I guess the thing that I would advise is wait and see what happens. It's not um, incumbent on everything to be instant, an instantly analyzed. There's a movie that's out right now called Jesus Revolution. It's about the beginning of Calvary Chapels. And I've, I've gotten mixed reports on it. Some say it's great. Some say it's fluffy. It's all made up. It's fiction. It's romanticized. You know, it's just everybody's got it. It's, it's a, the world. Remember the, the church in Revelation was, am I getting a click? I hear a click. So <laughs> um, the church in Revelation, the, the last of the seven churches, the Laodicean church, the lukewarm church, and when you break down the word Laodicea, Leo, the laity, the people's uh, opinion, the church of people's opinions. And isn't that sort of what we have today? And it's not just that we have a Laodicean church. We have a Laodicean world. Everybody's got an opinion. So I've often used the... Uh, intention, it's a, intended to be humorous. That there, there was this research done years ago that said there are 40,000 Christian denominations. I just don't think it's that high. I'm sorry. Unless the denominations are related only to eschatology, then it's way above 50,000. So, and I appreciate, and I'm not telling people to not send me things. Uh, I get a lot of books, charts, graphs, all of these things, and I can never figure out when they're sent to me, whether people are just sharing with me their insight or they, they want to fix me. You know, that's, I'm not sure which, which it is. So, um, so Asbury, we will see. Back to the Jesus Revolution movie and about Calvary Chapel. I mean, I remember when that happened. But there wasn't, of course, we didn't have social media back in those days. We didn't even have email. Can you imagine a world without email? So when that started about 1970 in Southern California, but it took, it didn't happen overnight. It took a while for it to happen. And it, there was a lot of, there was a great evangelistic outreach. I know people who were, um, I mean, they were hippies. I mean, they were drug 
infused, radical, leftist hippies, and they get saved. And all of a sudden, they're out planning churches, starting Bible schools, and that type of thing. So it was a great thing. So let's see what happens with, with Asbury. I'm willing to wait and see. I'm not saying I'm not... Um, uh, but, you know, there are some things, let's be honest and talk about uh, concerns that we might have. So we'll see what happens. But for crying out loud, people... <laughs> This running around calling everybody a Pharisee, demonically inspired, or anything like that, if you're even just saying, wait and see, this is not good Christian conduct, in my opinion. I hope that's clear. So, so a few years ago, this is Venice, Italy. Uh, currently, this week, uh, they're having a period of low tides, and it's not so much, I mean, is it low tides because of a drought or is it low tides because of the sun activity and that type of thing? But as you can see, the gondoliers are not going to be making much money taking people on a romantic um, boat gondola ride up and down the canals of Venice right now. But a few years ago, they were saying Venice was going to sink into the ocean. So how did, how did that one work out? So the one thing that you can sort of make a rule of is that it, if, if you make too much of a pronouncement about anything, it's going to change pretty quickly. <laughs> um, so just always be ready to say, well, I didn't have that one quite right. Of course, the climate change people will never admit that. Uh, I'm going to talk about this in just a moment. Uh, ways AI will change our lives um, and the way people, the people in charge want to use AI for everything. Let me... I think I talked about this last week. You can go online. I'm not going to take the time... I have a video someplace on my hard drive about the opening ceremony for this thing, and I want you to go watch this. It's, um, well, I'll tell you what, I'm going to try to find it here real quick, because I think it, I actually think it is important, and I see that I forgot to put it in. So give me one second here. Well, for some reason, it didn't get downloaded. It's a very interesting um, video. What you have is you have three children at the opening ceremony, one Muslim, one Jewish, one Christian, and they all bring a, like this building here, they have a, a model of it that's lighted. And they all come together with the light into one. Uh, it's very interesting symbolism uh, as to what they've done. I, give me one second. I hate to do this, but I'm going to try one more thing here. The, um, and I think this is, I think it's important. Um, uh, here we go.
Now, if I was telling my students anything, I would tell them to uh, don't just get ready before you get up there. <laughs> so here's the inauguration ceremony that they had. And I want you to look very carefully at the symbolism here. Okay, so there's the synagogue. Here's the church. And you see there's a, a Jewish boy, a Christian girl, and a Muslim boy. And so they're all getting together. And now you're going to see sort of, in, and so this comes, this is in Abu, um, in Abu Dhabi in the United Arab Emirates. So you see here, she brings the Christian church. Here comes a boy carrying a model of the Jewish synagogue. And here comes a boy carrying a model of the mosque. And you see how they're, you see the symbolism that they're trying to be there, the unity, three in one. And the Pope also came out, he did a thing uh, this week, he's talking about uh, all uniting around one religion. I guess it was a couple weeks ago that he did that. And this building came about because of a meeting that the Pope had with the leader of the Al-Azhar University, uh, which is the largest Sunni Muslim, Sunni Muslim institution, the most important Sunni Muslim school of theology in the world in Cairo, Egypt. And that is the place where, by the way, when Barack Obama in June of 2009 made one of his first foreign trips. He went to Al-Azhar University and he gave that, um, I don't know, I want to say demonic speech. So I'm going to say demonic speech where he talked about the story of Isa and hearing the, the Muslim call to prayer when he was a young boy and that type of thing. And the thing that, you know, we all need to come together. We're all one, this type of thing. But it was really that speech and that trip that gave the impetus for the rise of some of the Muslim Brotherhood and conflicts in the Middle East that eventually led to the beginning of the Syrian civil war uh, 12 years ago and uh, next month as when the Syrian civil war started. So the, the mosque at this, that's the one on the left there, the mosque is the one is um, one on the left. It's named after uh, the leader, president, head imam at the Al Azhar University. The Christian church there in the center is named after Francis, and then the uh, Jewish synagogue is named after. A Jewish rabbi, and I don't want to say the name because I'll get the wrong one, but you can see that the, the Jewish synagogue at least is uh, made so that it, is, it has the shape of a, a menorah, seven light posts. Um, okay, so let's jump into AI. Now, I want to set this up a little bit, and so I'm going to jump around a little bit because some of it's related to the war in Ukraine and future warfare. And what what are they what are they planning on? What what what's in the minds of the people, the elites of the world that are trying to bring all of these things together? So last week was the 
well, let's back up. Last month was Davos, the World Economic Forum. And all these videos are online, and I'm trying to wade through this stuff. I have a pile of stuff, and they keep coming out with more and more just from the World Economic Forum. Then last week, they had the World Government Summit in uh, Dubai, in the United Arab Emirates. Understand that a lot of things that we see that are coming in the world with regard to digital ID have their genesis in, in Dubai. Uh, Dubai doesn't really have oil, but it's built this big, powerful um, economic engine. And it's an amazing city, the tallest building in the world, a massive amount of construction over the last 30 years, luxury apartments, islands, uh, man-made islands. Uh, the head of, the, of Dubai uh, is the vice president of the United Arab Emirates government. Uh, the United Arab Emirates has seven sheiks, sheikdoms, that have come together to form one government. Abu Dhabi, the head of Abu Dhabi is the president. The head of Dubai is the vice president. And they, they've done pretty good at setting aside their tribal differences and that type of thing. And the head of Dubai, by the way, the king there, he's, uh, he was married for a time to the half-sister of King, Hussein, uh, king Abdullah II of Jordan. She was his sixth wife, and that leads to one of your rules of life. It's always the sixth wife who's going to cause you problems. You can probably manage the first five, but that sixth one is bound to get you sooner or later. And they, they got into it. She supposedly had to fare with a bodyguard. She moved, took the kids and went to London, and she ended up with about, I don't know, it was, I think it was like a five, six, seven hundred million dollar settle, divorce settlement. Uh, but he's done a lot of things like, his kids who've tried to get away from him, he's tracked them and brought them back to Dubai and that type of thing using, uh, it's believed, that Pegasus software that came from Israel. He tracked one of his daughters, and she was pulled off a yacht near the coast of India with special forces and that type of thing. I mean, so these are the, this is the guy who starts, who runs the World Government Summit. Now, I have here this article from the Wall Street Journal uh, last, about a week ago, a week ago Friday. Smartphones change the face of conflict. And this is where this AI is going. I'm going to try to incorporate all of this, but it, it's, it's very hard to get all of this organized because you want to jump around. I mean, I could do a four-hour talk on technocracy a four-hour talk on transhumanism and that type of thing. So what I try to do here each week is bring you in a sort of organized fashion some of the highlights. But in Ukraine, um, I think most people would say that Ukraine has... Now, look, I don't think Ukraine's going to win. Okay, they just... They don't have the manpower, but they have done much, much better than anybody thought. There are, I saw an, a huge variety of estimates of people killed in the Russia-Ukraine war this week since it's the one-year anniversary was Friday. 
some estimate 300,000, maybe up to 100,000 Ukrainian civilians. I think that's probably high. Up to 100,000 Ukrainian soldiers. I think you might get close to 100,000 if you combine the civilians and the soldiers. Millions of people have left Ukraine. I think Poland has close to 2 million Ukrainians there. Other countries that border have over a million Ukrainians. So Ukraine went from a population of about 43 million to about 24 million. 43 million before the war to 24 million today. But part of the reason that Ukraine has done better than anybody thought, of course, they've got some assistance and technology from us, but they've also been able to make use of artificial intelligence and computers and smartphones in the way that they've targeted. And some military people say that Ukraine has been able to increase their effectiveness with a lot of weapons by a factor of 10. Um, and they... And, you know, there are estimates I've seen anywhere from 60,000 to 200,000 Russian soldiers killed. And you can go and I mean, it's, it's a bloody war. It's, and it's not going to get better. In fact, this was a, um, I kind of find it humorous in the sense that it's, I, but I think it's an accurate representation of what might be going on. This is how somebody viewed what's going on, that the West is playing checkers and Putin is playing chess. And here's a, a little animation, vi animated video about that. By the way, I, I was watching some videos of um, Putin this week. And you remember when early in the war, and he would have meetings with people, and he had that table that was like 50 yards long, and he would be at one end and they would be at the other. He's actually gone back to a normal-sized table now, and he did a big rally in Warsaw. He gave a very important speech. Um, which I was going to play some clips of, but I just didn't have time. I mean, you know, I would love to play clips of some of these speeches, but these guys get up and they, he spoke for like an hour and 50 minutes. You think I'm long-winded? You know? Uh, and you don't have to stay here. I mean, I'm sure the people did. There's all these theories about he's got cancer, he's ill, he's near death. And the answer is, we don't know. I will say that I see him speaking for an hour and 50 minutes. I see him sitting at conferences on stage for four hours. I don't even think he gets up and goes to the bathroom. So either they've got him <laughs> wired up somehow that he can do that. Um, I suppose somebody would say, well, it's probably a double, just like everybody else seems to have a double. Um, but... 
And he gave a speech. His speech was very direct. I mean, he, he really attacked the West. I talked a lot about this on my midweek update this last week, so I, I, go watch that. And I talked about it. I, I will give credit somewhat to bringing it back to my memory to uh, Glenn Beck, and I always make the standard Glenn Beck warnings, you know, you know what his theology is and that type of thing. But I thought his observation was pretty astute as to what he made is that Putin comes out and he gives a speech, and he says that uh, we're going to destroy the West, the West is corrupt morally, there's a bunch of pedophiles, uh, they can't get the transgenders straight, they do same-sex marriage, and all that. And then immediately a lot of people, there's like, oh, look, he's such a great Christian guy. He's so wonderful. What's such a wonderful Christian? Uh, and, you know, Ukraine is evil. Everybody there's a Nazi. Uh, I even saw one commentary and I was calling Zelensky a destroyer of world, destroyer of the world. Look, um, I think it's okay to be questioned both sides. And also question our side, and I think Glenn Beck and his program made the point that I tried to make a number of years ago is that there's a religious, mystical side to what Putin does. And uh, a lot of it comes from a philosopher named, uh, a geopolitical philosopher, Russian philosopher named Alexander Dugin. And you can go read his books on geopolitics and the war for the world island and that type of thing. The world island is a phrase that a um, guy named uh, Halford McKinder, a, ge a, a, uh, a geography guy from England came up with over 100 years ago, that the control of the world island, that area up there between like Poland and Russia, whoever controls that controls the world island, which would include all of Asia and Europe, and whoever controls the world island controls the world. So a lot of that derives the military, political philosophy of a country like Russia, but there is this mystical thing. And when you talk to people in Russia or Ukraine, and I have over the past few months, you know, they, they talk about the fact that, well, you know, Russia did this to us in 850 AD, or I'll just, I'm just pulling a date out of, the, out of my hat. And we gotta, we gotta write that wrong. And that's how they think about it. I mean, that's what happened in Serbia and Bosnia and the, the fighting and conflict that goes on there because there was a Serbian church or something that was taken over back in the 1400s or 1300s. And they're still fighting about it. So these hatreds are ancient and they go on. So understand that, but the point that Glenn Beck made, which I agree with, is that just because Putin says some things that you like, don't believe that he's on your side. Because the Dugan philosophy is push the red button and annihilate the West. And be honest with you folks, that could happen. I mean, certainly God uses bad people to judge other people. And we've done a lot of evil things in the world from the West. So maybe we deserve it. But understand, too, that the leaders of the West, they're not our friends either. We need to be, you know, what's, what's going on. And so you're going to see some of that in these videos when I play some things from the World Government Summit here. But in Ukraine, 
Ukraine has, in the war in Ukraine, Ukraine has done pretty well because of technology. And that technology is coming everywhere. So here's the World Government Summit uh, in Dubai. We have to re-globalize this world. We have to make sure that we strengthen cooperation because, as it was mentioned, we are faced with issues which are of existential importance for humankind. Our common future is at stake. When we finished our annual meeting in Davos just three weeks ago, there was a lot of discussion about what some people call the capability of humankind to cope with so many challenges at the same time. There was a world of multi-crisis. But actually, we are not in a world of multi-crisis. We are in a world where simultaneously we are caught in deep, systematic transformation processes. So the difference between a crisis and a transformation. If you manage a crisis, you want to come back to the original point as fast as possible. You want to correct the situation. But in a transformational situation, you have to manage change to come out at the end of the transformation in a better situation compared to the beginning. The world at the moment, as I just mentioned, faces many of those transformational processes, systemic processes, structural changes. Now, the political transformation. Minister, you mentioned it. We are moving from a world more or less dominated by one superpower into a patchwork of, multi world, of a multi-power world with one superpower, one competing superpower, aspiring superpowers like India, middle powers, but also rogue states, companies who have become global powers, technology companies, social media. So we will move in a very fragmented world in a, and hopefully not too fractured world, where we have to make sure that the rule of law is not trampled with the feet, but where we maintain the necessary framework for global cooperation. Okay, now listen, I'm not torturing you, okay? You know, by the way, I think that a good business to have would be have the, like the coffee and caffeine concession at these meetings uh, to keep everybody awake. And I agree. Artificial intelligence, but not only artificial intelligence, <clears throat> but also the metaverse, new space technologies, and I could go on and on, synthetic biology, 
our life in 10 years from now will be completely different, very much affected, and who masters those technologies in some way will be the master of the world. And the last factor I want to mention is resilience, the capability to bounce back, because there will be certainly what we call the black swans, the unpleasant surprises which will come in our way. And there are these, a black swan is an event that really changes everything. In fact, as I was re reading and researching mountains of information this week, there was an article in the Wall Street Journal either Friday or Saturday, and it talked about the fact that, you know, with this Ukraine crisis, we've had this energy issue. You know, Nord Stream was destroyed, people are coming in, Europe is buying liquefied natural gas from us at a much higher cost. But then the question was, what will happen if there's peace between Russia and Ukraine? And to an oil guy, oil and gas guy, they said that could be a black swan event. In fact, you're gonna, I think you're going to hear that term about black swan events a lot in the coming weeks, months, years, days, whatever, uh, until this thing is all wrapped up. Uh, that these black swan events, they're, they're like these really bad things. So let's, let's say, for example, there's a solar storm that wipes out the electrical grid. Let's say there's an EMP attack that wipes out the electrical grid. But the interesting thing is that the world is so upside down that to people in the energy industry, if there's peace in you, between Russia and Ukraine now, that's a black, sw black swan event because they won't know what to do. It'll, it'll completely upend the energy markets. And so now all these oil and gas guys are saying, do we invest in fracking or getting things out of the ground? Because what happens if Russia comes back online, the price of oil goes down. And I don't think even Saudi Arabia doesn't want that because you'll see some things that Saudi Arabia has planned. I'm going to go into that again a little bit. So they're, the world is so upside down that even peace in the major conflict in the world could be is considered to be a potentially black swan event that's going to upend everything and change everything. And so what you what you find is that I do believe we're at this prophetic time in history when these things are going to happen, and as they happen, um, I don't know how to say this. They're going to kind of come up from out of left field a bit. It's like, well, I didn't really see that one coming. And I think we've seen that a lot over the last few years. So that's just what I encourage people is don't be too set on your charts and that type of thing because things are going to change. So here's the last little clip of Schwab. And then I have one more from uh, a couple years ago. So here's just a little QA, just a couple minutes uh, at World Government Summit. Uh, what is next after the fourth industrial revolution? Where your mind take you? I think the fourth revolution, industrial revolution, will 
be in our mind for quite some years to come. But what is very essential, my concern, my deep concern, is that the, those technologies, if we do not work together on a global scale, if we do not formulate, shape together the necessary policies, they will escape our power to master those technologies. Because uh, artificial intelligence, you can, it's relatively easy, let's say, to understand how a computer functions. Of course, if I go back to the first industrial revolution, how a steam engine functions. But how does really quantum computing function? How does um, artificial intelligence, particularly if it's self-replicating, functions? So one of my concerns is how to shape the necessary policies to make sure that those technologies serve humankind. But the second concern which I have and where governments have an important role, the change goes so fast in our world and will go even faster. How can we make sure that the individual, each citizen, doesn't feel overwhelmed by change because he cannot understand really what's going on and if we do not understand we become fearful and we react negatively and we see the first consequences already in many countries with polarization of the public opinion. It has to do with some feeling that we lose control over our own fate. And here I think governments have an important role to explain and to have the ambition and the vision to show that those technologies can serve for the good and not, are, are not per se able. And then here is Schwab a couple of years ago at the University of Chicago, I think the Council of Global Affairs, the Chicago Council of Global Affairs, talking about where he sees these things going, and I don't think that he's changed his mind on this at all. And now, the fourth industrial revolution is not just a prolongation of this digitalization, it's much more. Um, it's a combination of technologies. It's not just the digital technology. Just think of genetics, think of brain research, and so on. And the power of the fourth industrial revolution comes from the combination of all those technologies. Actually, I was uh, saying um, it's at the end what, what the fourth industrial revolution will lead to is a fusion of our physical, our digital, and our biological identities. And one of the ways that will happen will be through central bank digital currencies. This is Pippa Mulgren at last year's World Government Summit, which was held, I think, in, in May of 2022, because it got delayed because of the pandemic and everything. And she said, listen, you know, we're going to have these central bank digital currencies, but we probably need a digital bill of rights. And I can tell you, looking through the World Economic Forum, the World Government Summit, 
and all these conferences that take place, nobody seems to be talking about the Digital Bill of Rights to protect people. In fact, it's something a little bit different, but you wonder how they're, how they're going to get this done. Here's another discussion on how will the world order change this decade at the World Government Summit, and I don't know who this guy, this one guy who speaks is a professor, but listen to what he says about how he thinks the change happens. What so, are the main challenges? But, but, so, no, so I, I, mm -hmm. I agree, and, but of course, the question is, how, how is this transition going to happen? I mean, I, I agree, totally agree that the world order, the way it is built today, doesn't make any sense. That is, it's not in line with the economic powers like India, Brazil, or Germany, you know, that they don't have a, they don't have a, a massive role in the, in the international order. But to me, the big question is, so how we are going to go through this transform? It has to be, it cannot be gradual. It has to be, has to be driven by a, part, for, by a certain shock that will happen. So now we will reconsider this entire... No, so if your question is, that this period could be turbulent, could have violence, yes. could have conflicts. We are already living it. And I think he's right. I mean, this is uh, exactly what's already happening. Now, this next thing that I'm going this to play, this is a, a, a radio podcast called Bankless. These guys are crypto guys. And if you watch, like, the first part of this, you're like, like, what are they even talking about? It's like a foreign language, like... You buy this, you do this, you get this token, you do this, DeFi this, and why, you know. And they sound so like, I, I suppose they're making money at it. I don't know. It's, um, it's sort of Greek to me. But they have this guy on. His name is Eliezer Ludowski, the guy here at the bottom. And they're, gonna, they're talking about AI. So we're at this place where there's all this stuff about AI that's out. I mean, it's, I'll show you an article in just a moment that was written, uh, a positive by Eric Schmidt and Henry Kissinger that just was in the Wall Street Journal Friday or Saturday. But, oh, AI is going to be great. It's not going to be a problem. But Ladowski, um thought that everything was going to, that the people that were running AI, and we have ChatGPT, there's all sorts of things out there. In fact, you know now that they're coming out with, um, I think Gab is trying to come out with a Christian AI, because what they found is they've made some tweaks to the AI that came out from like Bing, OpenAI, and now it's just this woke nonsense that it, you know, it gives you all the woke bias stuff. So people say, well, okay, well, if they can tweak AI that way, we can tweak AI to come out with something that satisfies us. Now, put that in the context of the verses where Paul warns about that they will heap to themselves teachers to satisfy their itching ears. They, they, they want their ears tickled. So now everybody's going to have their own AI. And I, I have to tell you that sometimes when I think about this, that these big tech AI companies, because of the data they control and the philosophy behind them, that at least part of these kingdoms that come together to form this great beast empire at the end could come from the technology sector because they have a tremendous amount of, of power 
there's an article, you know, one of the things that uh, conservatives have said, I think Josh Hawley came out and said, you know, uh, Senator, where's he from, Wisconsin? No, Missouri. He comes out and he says, you know, we got, we got to limit social media for children because it's just not good. And, of course, everybody goes, oh, you, you're just such a fuddy-duddy, you Luddite, you don't understand technology and all this. But even yesterday in the New York Times, Michelle Goldberg, who is a lefty, and most of the time, you know, she comes across as just a lunatic. But when she has sort of a rational moment, you've got to give credit to her. And she came out and she said, you know, I, I kind of think he's right, Senator Hawley, and the conservatives who've been concerned about social media because we have a major, major crisis with young people in this country. Major crisis. Uh, suicidal, that type of thing. It's just, and particularly among girls, and then that leads to this transgender thing and the things that are going on there. I don't know if you know that there was a student up in Canada at a Catholic school and he said in class there were only two genders. He was suspended from school, a Catholic school, okay, by the priest that runs it. He was suspended. He came back to school and he was arrested because he was misgendering other students. In other words, he wouldn't call them a girl or they or he or she or they, whatever they wanted to be that didn't match up with their biological sex. So all of this stuff is really part of this giant piece that's congealing together. And so all these people are coming out. We're going to have a Christian AI. We're going to have a, um, you know, a, a Democratic AI, a Republican AI. Let me ask you this. When I play you some videos in a moment of an AI-based smart city, what if it's a Muslim AI? Have you thought about that? How's that going to be used? And do you understand that what this does is it just, it doesn't solve anything. It, it doesn't solve this great utopian ideal that Klaus Schwab has, oh, we're just going to put this all together and we're going to come together and sing Kumbaya. It makes everything worse. But now here's the problem is that AI is developing so quickly. Elon Musk did a famous interview with Jack Ma, who has sort of disappeared now because he got sideways with the Chinese regime. But, you know, a few years ago, he's one of the richest guys in the world. And Elon Musk said... You know, I'm concerned where this is going, about 2017 or 2018. And so Eliezer Ludowski said, you know, I got hopeful when I saw that and some conferences then. But now he's going to talk about this. So this is about a six, seven-minute clip. And I want you to listen carefully to what he says, because this guy's big into AI. He, um, he knows what he's talking about but he has concerns. I, I think you ought to listen to this. So first, one of the guys from Bankless is going to ask a question, and then Eliezer will speak. The most dire uh, you've ever seemed on this topic, and maybe that's not true. Maybe you've, you've sort of always been this way, but um, 
it seems like the direction of your hope that we solve this issue has declined. Um, yeah, I'm wondering if you feel like that's the case, and if you could sort of summarize your, your take on all of this as we close out this episode and offer, I guess, any thoughts, uh, concluding thoughts here. I mean, uh, so well, I don't know if you've got like a time limit on this episode, question mark? <laughs> Or is it just as long as it runs? It's as long as it needs to be. And I feel like this is a pretty important topic. So you answer this and All right. however you want. Well, there was a conference one time on what are we going to do about looming risk of AI disaster. And Elon Musk attended that conference. And I was like, maybe this is it. Maybe, you know that maybe this is when the the powerful people notice and it's you know like one of the relatively more technical powerful people who could be noticing this and maybe this is where humanity finally turns and starts you know not quite fighting back because there isn't an external enemy here but conducting itself with uh, I don't know acting like it cares maybe and what came out of that conference, well, was OpenAI, which was basically the very nearly the worst possible way of doing anything. Uh, a whole, like, this is not a problem of, oh no, what if secret elites get AI? It's that nobody knows how to build a thing. If, if we do have an alignment technique, it's going to involve running the AI with a bunch of, like, careful bounds on it, where you don't just, like, throw all the cognitive power you have at something. You have limits on the for loops. And whatever whatever it is that, that could possibly save the world, like, turn all, go out and turn all the GPUs and the server clusters into Rubik's Cubes, or something else that prevents the world from ending when somebody else builds another AI a few weeks later, you know, Anything that could do that is, is an artifact where somebody else could take it and take the bounds off the for loops and use it to destroy the world. Yeah, so, like, let's open up everything. Let's accelerate everything. It's, it, was, it was like GPT-3's version. No, GPT-3 didn't exist back then, but it was like ChatGPT's blind version of, like, throwing the ideals at a place where they were exactly the wrong ideals to solve the problem. And the problem is that Demon summoning is easy, and angel summoning is much harder. Open sourcing all the demon summoning circles is not the correct solution. I'm not even using, and I'm using Elon Musk's own terminology here. They talk about AI is summoning the demon, which, you know, not accurate. But, and then the solution was to put a demon summoning circle in every household. And why? Because his friends were calling him Luddites once he'd expressed any concern about AI at all. So he picked a road that sounded like openness. And set and like and like accelerating technology, so his friends would stop calling him luddites. It was very much the worst, you know, like maybe not the literal, actual worst possible strategy, but so very far pessimal. And, and that was it. That was like that. That was me in 2015, going like, oh, so so this is what humanity will elect to do. We 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 will not rise above. We will not have more grace. Not even here at the very end. So that is, you know, that, that, is, uh, that is when I did my crying late at night and then picked myself up and 
fought and fought and fought until I'd run out all the avenues that 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 I seem to have the capabilities to to do. There's like more things, but they require scaling my efforts in a way that I've never been able to make them scale. And and they're and all of it's pretty far fetched at this point, anyways. So, you know that that so. What's, you know, what's changed over the years? Well, first of all, I ran out some remaining avenues of hope. And second, things got to be such a disaster, such a visible disaster, the AIs got powerful enough, and it became clear enough that, you know, we did not know how to align these things, that I could actually say what I'd been thinking for a while, and not just have people go completely like, what are you saying about all this? <laughs> You know, now now the stuff that that was obvious back in 2015 is you know starting to become visible in distance to others, and not just like completely invisible. That's what changed over time. What kind of um, what do you hope people hear out of this episode and out of out of your comments, Eliezer in in 2023, who is sort of running on the last fumes of of hope. Um, yeah, what do, you, what do you want people to get out of this episode? What, like, what are you planning to do? I, I don't have concrete hopes here. You know, when everything is in ruins, you might as well speak the truth, right? Maybe somebody hears it. Somebody figures out something I didn't think of. I mostly expect that this does more harm than good in the modal universe because a bunch of people are like, oh, I have this brilliant, clever idea, which is, you know, like something that somebody that, you know, I was arguing against in 2003 or whatever. But, you know, maybe, maybe there maybe somebody out there with the proper level of pessimism hears and thinks of something I didn't think of. I, I suspect that if there's hope at all, it comes from a technical solution because the difference between technical, solution, technical problems and political problems is at least the technical problems have solutions in principle. <laughs> at least the technical problems are solvable. We're not on course to solve this one, but I don't really see the... I, I think anybody who's hoping for a political solution has frankly not understood the technical problem. They do not understand what it looks like to, to try to solve the political problem to such a degree that the world is not controlled by AI because they don't understand how easy it is to destroy the world with AI given that the clock keeps ticking forward. So that was um, pretty upbeat. <laughs> right? So, um, you know, I think this is a place where the church can kind of step in with the hope that Eliezer Ladowski seems to lack, and pray for him. Pray for these young guys on that show. Um, because some of them see this, and I, I could see these guys. I mean, they, these guys, they, they talk tech, and they're big into like all this Bitcoin and crypto and all this other stuff. But you, you could visibly see that they were gobsmacked by what Eliezer Ludowski had to say, Right? And he, he just said, there's no hope. This thing is going so far. And this is an example. This is a UN UNESCO. Now, we know UNESCO. They do things like 
ignore the Jewish history of Hebron, and the Jewish history of the Temple Mount and that type of thing. And now they had a big conference last week. Everybody's having a conference. Internet for Trust. Guidelines for regulating digital platforms. Now, how do you think this is going to go for people who don't line up? And so the whole conference was talking about, they come out, they have these guidelines for regulating digital platforms, a multi-stakeholder approach to safeguarding freedom of expression and access to information. But what is it based on? Misinformation, disinformation? It's the exact same thing that we hired that um, Nina Jankowitz, Scary Poppins, to handle. And of course, she went away, but all of the stuff was in place, and it continued, and it got worse, and they never stopped for a second. And it wasn't too long after she left that you know, the Obiden administration came out with this um, bio-digital thing that, that kind of falls under the rubric DARPA-H, which is you know, defense agency research something, that that's using this AI to develop weapons. And look at this. This is this has happened a couple weeks ago. A general in the Air Force came out and he says, listen, we're we're going to war with China by 2025. And we need to get ready. So you go and look at Eliezer Ludowski and he said, I've been talking about this for 18 years that this is a problem. And nothing's happened except Instead of putting some brakes on it and some controls that are hard to get around, what did they do? They gave everybody Alexa or you know a thing in your a device in your house that uses this. They didn't. It didn't stop them on anything. Do you think they're going to stop at anything right now? And this all has this Tower of Babel type stuff. So he says, "Listen, what we need to do is we need to develop." AI, sort of similar to the AI that's being used by Ukraine effectively against Russia on targeting. There's a company called Palantir. They have a subsidiary or a group within Palantir, which was um, I think Peter Thiel started it. It was a conservative guy. But Alex Karp was at some of these conferences at Davos, and I saw an interview with him this week. Just look up Alex Karp Palantir, P-A-L-I-N-T-I-R. And he's talking about how we gave this to Ukraine to use, and they're using it effectively. And so here's an article from the, de the debrief. Pentagon secretly working to unleash massive swarms of autonomous multi-domain drones to dominate the enemy. Now, if you remember, around the New Year's, I played you videos, and I think it was on Tom Hughes' podcast, we played these videos from Abu Dhabi, just down the road from Dubai, where they had the World Government Summit, where they had used these drones to create digital art, like an AI, uh, you know, one of those electronic-looking heads with a red AI in the middle. And one they used last summer... It was for the guy who rules Abu Dhabi, the president of the United Arab Emirates, and it was like a, you could tell who it was, his face and head in the sky. And the, the question becomes is, 
How does this play into our end time scenarios, these drone swarms? And it, so if they, if they can do art in the sky, how difficult is it them to do drone swarms in the sky? And does this relate to anything that we read in Ezekiel 38 and 39 about him coming up upon the land like a cloud? I kind of think that we're, we're there. And you can see that the drone thing is leading to this alliance between Russia and Iran, which is significant. And Iran and Syria and that type of thing. Details of the policy project are largely shouted in secrecy, the debrief says. However, language in recently updated pre-solicitation documents suggest the development of massive autonomous vehicle swarms likely has a specific focus on deterring or defeating a potential Chinese invasion of Taiwan. And so what this uh, Air Force general said is, hey, let's take drones... Let's, let's take our KC-135 tankers. Isn't the KC-135 the, the military number for the 707 aircraft? And, you know, these are like flying... I have a friend that flew them. It was like, it's like a giant bomb, <laughs> petrol bomb that they're flying around on, refueling air, aircraft. But let's put these, refurbish them... And we can drop 50, 100, 150 drones out to swarm a Chinese invasion. And you can do pretty good. I mean, fighter jets might have trouble handling 150 suddenly appearing targets that can fly. It changes the whole face of things. And, and he says, we need to upgrade our stuff and we need to use AI to do it. And we need to work with DARPA to get that done. And then here's a picture of what that might look like. Here's a, a screenshot of the um, contract uh, request for proposal that they put out, autonomous multi-domain adaptive swarms of swarms, AMAS. And you can see this is like current. I think the due date on everything was, response date was February 10th. And this stuff changes very quickly. Here's an article. Now, this is one. Um, it says, uh, artificial intelligence will cause humans to think in new ways. Maybe not so good. In fact, one enterprising guy in the UK, he used ChatGPT to prepare a response to parking tickets that he had. And guess what? He got off got the fine waved. Here's another. This is uh, ChatGPT heralds at Intellectual Revolution. That's Eric Schmidt and Henry Kissinger writing that in the Wall Street Journal. This is... Um, so I said, you know, we, we've got this AI stuff that we talk about. So what if they use it what if there's an Islamic AI and they, they use artificial intelligence to foster their minds and to help them develop? So I'm going to play a couple videos. This is, uh, I played part of this last week. Uh, this is the uh, new Moraba, a city that is, or not a city, a building and a development within Riyadh, Saudi Arabia. In the future, 
cities will be much more than just places to live in. The future is here, and it's real. Introducing the new Maraba, the world's largest modern downtown. Designed with people at its heart. Helping make Riyadh one of the top 10 most livable cities in the world. All within a 15 minute walk. at its center, a new icon, the Mukar. The world's first immersive, experiential destination. A gateway to another world. At a scale that's unprecedented and unforgettable. Where you'll feel wonder, amazement, and your heart race. As you dine with gentle giants. Explore a world of magic. Or live on Mars. Where your retail experience is completely reimagined. And you feel at home in another world. This is the new face of Riyadh. A gateway to another world. New Maraba. Okay, that's... Uh, here's just one more one. They have this press kit. That the they new put horizon on. for Riyadh. A new icon, the Mukab. The world's first immersive experiential destination. Well, that's going to be a re... Well, but look at how this thing... It's like the Tower of Babel at the center. Everything, another 15-minute city they keep talking about. A gateway to another world. Uh, boy, a lot of things happening. So I'm going to do uh, two stories from is with regard to Israel, and then we'll be done. Um, and I'll just have to save... This is an article that I referenced in my midweek update, Fourth Political Theory by Alexander Dugan. And you can see some of the things that he's, uh, his, he's produced a lot of books. Rise of the Fourth Political Theory. Uh, down here, Last War of the World Island. Um, and so he, he's got a big philosophy. So now there was a very important story that came out a week ago in the Jewish Chronicle, published in the UK. And what it said was, because there's a lot of talk, Netanyahu's having meetings, the US and Israel have done the biggest joint exercises, military exercises in their history. Uh, Riyadh, or uh, Iran came out this week and pretty much admitted that are now uh, achieving 84% enrichment level on their uranium which means they're like really close to rolling out a bomb within a period of weeks. Now they got to get the delivery system, but they also announced a new hypersonic missile, cruise missile, that they're developing. And, and the point of all this is, so like Ukraine is able to, for lack of a better term, punch above its weight class with the use of technology and artificial intelligence, Iran will also be able to do this. So when you factor that into how the Bible says these countries line up in Bible prophecy, I think that's pretty significant. 
So everybody pretty much assumes that Israel could, within weeks, attack Iran. And in my midweek update, I'm going to cover a um, a new publication that just came out. It's a hundred slides away. <laughs> uh, Israel Among the World's Democracies, the Strategic Analysis for Israel. It's put out by the Institute for National Security Studies. Now, they, I would consider them center-left in their orientation, so I, I don't know, I, I, but it's very well done, and it'll get you like an idea on some of the problems. By the way, if you want to go to the IDSF website, uh, General Miravivi will be doing a briefing tonight at 7 p.m. Eastern, and you can register for that. I'll talk about it, but this is um, this is a big deal as to what happened um, with this article in the Jewish Chronicle. Um, the, what happened was this reporter had she's Jewish and she had been able to get close to the Iranian regime. She met Soleimani. She met Khomeini. She talked about how oh, I love Khomeini. And, that, and they fell for it. And they told her all sorts of things. Um, and she talks about the fact that they are, they are mapping Jews in the world so that if Israel and the United States attacks Iran, they are going to send out assassination squads to kill them. That's what their plan uh, Look at what this one says. Uh, Khomeini spent a few minutes on chit-chat then he began talking about the end of days, how he would be the one who would usher in the return of the Mahdi. His voice was quiet, high-pitched. He talked about this great war that would take place and how Aqsa had to be liberated for the Mahdi to return to save humanity. Now think about this. The philosophy that seems to drive Vladimir Putin to annihilate the West is a philosophy of annihilation, just like Khomeini has based on Islam. And what happens when you get a guy like that, AI, generative AI? Now, with some, like Mohammed bin Salman, the crown prince of Saudi Arabia, he plans these big buildings, like the Muraba in Riyadh. The city of Neom, a 100-mile-long city. 15, and they're all like 1,500 feet high. Um, very interesting. So he talked about this great war that would take place and how Al-Aqsa had to be liberated for the Mahdi to return to safe humanity. And this conversation took place a couple years ago. She goes on, he was basically trying to justify crimes against humanity, saying you had to harm the enemies of God who shouldn't be seen as human beings. And... Can you sort of see the close philosophical thing? Now, by the way, we got leaders. They want to get rid of us, too. Because they think they're, they've got a religion that's driving them. And maybe they all converge together. I'm not sure how that all works out. He said that killing the innocent was okay because they really weren't innocent. So the mistake we make is to assume he cares about his country. He doesn't. He will literally see it burn if it means Islam will triumph. Iran is highly organized is hiring organized criminals to spy on Britain's Jews in preparation for a potential assassination campaign 
against prominent members of the community, Security Minister Tom Tugendhat told the Jewish Chronicle. And so this week in the Jewish Chronicle, the front page article, criminals are tracking British Jews for Iran's killing squads. Last week, we exposed how the regime is mapping Jews in the diaspora to lay the ground for high-profile revenge murders should Israel launch a military attack against the theocracy. Basically, the Iranians are using crooks based in Britain to spy for them. It's, um, it's pretty bad. Security Council came out and kind of dinged Israel for actually having settlements in Judea and Samaria. And then this, you know, we always talk about peace with Saudi Arabia, but here in Arab News, a Saudi newspaper, the guy has an opinion piece saying, new power for Israel's uh, settlers champion. And they gave the guy named Smotrich, Smotrich uh, who's part of the Orthodox parties in the coalition with Netanyahu, control over Judea, Samaria, and they're melting down. There was a big uh, raid in Nablus this week. I believe nine people were killed in the raid. Maybe it was more than that. Maybe it was 17. There were a number, a lot of people killed in the raid, and there were over 100 injured. To my knowledge, I don't know that there were any major injuries among the Israeli defense soldiers. But that happened in Nablus. I've been to Nablus. It is one of the hotbeds of terrorism. And things are really heating up in Israel. It's pretty tense in some areas. Janine, uh, they busted a terror cell down in Jericho. They had one in, um, uh, in Nablus, Hebron. They've also had some but here's what this editorialist says. Palestinian politician Mustafa Barghouti, secretary of the Palestinian Initiative Movement, told Arab News appointing Smotrich to this position and with these powers means annexing the West Bank to Israel and freeing the settlers to do whatever they want against the Palestinians. Barghouti said Smotrich and another extremist, Security Minister Itamar Ben-Gavir, were now responsible for everything related to and affecting the lives and properties of the Palestinians, such as civil administration, internal security, settlement financing, control of the Al-Aqsa Mosque, border guards, and Israeli prisons. This means declaring war on the Palestinians. So right now in Israel, there is, and I'll close with, I, I don't want to close with this, but I will. <laughs> I have some really good things here. Can I throw one in? So we had, Pal we had East Palestine, right? We're talking about Palestine, so it's related. So it's not really another point. But have you seen these things that are going on? They had three major oil gas facilities, storage, refineries, and stuff in Mexico that blew up this week. Uh, that's a pretty big fire. Uh, there were a number of people, and you start to wonder, it's like, what is going on? Because you're hearing this everywhere. It seems like it's, uh, it's coming. So, um, anyway, uh, that's another one. By the way, Russia says they might contribute to this. They're saying, well, we might use nuclear weapons and we're going to drop one into Yellowstone and blow up the caldera there. You don't need to turn the sound up on that. Nobody will understand it. And so they take their big ICBM and blow up Yellowstone, see what happens.
And when their philosophy is annihilation, do you think that they might do it? Yeah, I think they might do it. Uh, so here's a picture of the raid on Nablus. That's from the Al-Quds newspaper. But the big issue in Israel right now is there's all these protests that are taking place as they're coming into judicial reform. And there were another 100,000. This has been going on for seven or eight weeks. Uh, they had these signs up the, about uh, Bibi Netanyahu. They call him um, the crime minister. Uh, Herzog gave a pretty good speech uh, a couple weeks ago talking about we need to get everybody together. So what, what they're proposing is they're proposing a reform of the judicial system to make it kind of simple. Israel doesn't really have a constitution. They have basic laws. They had a declaration of independence. What has happened is that the judges have pretty much got complete control of who gets appointed to the judiciary. In addition to that, about... About 30 years ago, uh, the guy in the Supreme Court came out and said, we're going to adopt a reasonableness test. Well, what does reasonable mean? I went to law school, and I know we talk about the reasonable man, but nobody's ever met the reasonable man. And it's pretty much something that you want whatever you want it to mean. Um... There was a lot of judicial involvement in the forcing Jews to evacuate Gaza back in 2005. And there's a lot of pain and anger in Israel still about that in the religious community. Uh, Nasrallah has come out and said, well, you know, this internal stuff, it's going to make it easy for us. We're just going to walk over Israel now because they're going to have a civil war. And so there's been these things on Lebanon TV about how they're going to uh, take over. So Ruthie Bloom in Friday's Jerusalem Post, I thought had a pretty good article, Israel's Declaration of Independence as a Protest Prop. So what happens is people have taken a phrase out of the Declaration of Independence, and it's... Uh, Liberty, justice, and peace. So this is Barack. Four decades after the Declaration of Independence, the Supreme Court justice announced that the Supreme Court would henceforth not only interpret Knesset laws, but also determine their validity or invalidity. It is this undemocratic power grab from the public's elected representatives that the current coalition is in the process of rectifying. And they're having major meltdowns about, like I said, protest all over. We're going to have civil war. I can play you videos of Knesset members. It looks like, um, you remember when uh, the Schwarzenegger movie Kindergarten Cop came out and he left the room to go get something and the teacher met him at the good-looking love interest in the movie met him and said, uh, you know, kindergarten is kind of like the ocean. You never turn your back on the ocean. And he goes in, and the kids are running all over the place. Well, this is what the Knesset looks like. With, and they're just, they're, they're fighting, they're arguing, they're not getting along. And then every now and then, they'll, they'll talk cordially to other people in the Knesset, left and right. 
And what happens? Their supporters go ballistic. I can't believe you're betraying us by even talking to that guy. And it's just, it's crazy. And there's probably a compromise. And part of the problem is the way, in, in every country in the world, the legislature has some say in the appointment of the judges. We do it here. France does it. England does it. But Israel's a little bit different because the executive and legislative branch kind of get rolled up into the Knesset. The ministers come from the Knesset. The prime minister comes from the Knesset. So you have this one body, and they don't want to give that one body control of both. And that's understandable, but there's probably a compromise, but it doesn't seem to be doing this way. So the Declaration of Independence uh, a bunch of years ago, and you'll see this, you know, with our soul's blood, we will defend our democracy. A whole, I mean, and they're using a lot of language, and there's these big protests. Uh, and then look at this one. This was a poster that showed up in one of the protests, from startup nation to shutdown nation. And there you have Netanyahu right in the middle of Khomeini, Erdogan, Putin, and um, is that Orban on the right? Everybody, I don't understand why everybody hates Orban, but... Anyway, so here's what it said. This isn't the Declaration of Independence of that. We will do a constitution, and it says, the state of Israel will be open to Jewish immigration and kibbutzim, focus on the development of the country for the benefit of its, all its inhabitants. It will be founded on the foundations of freedom, justice, and peace. So the, the people who are protesting, and, and they come from different walks. I think it's largely center and center left, but there are some people on the right that do it. And there are right-wing lawyers that are really protesting, and then are right-wing lawyers that say, hey, we need to do something. We have a problem here. And nobody's agreeing on anything. But they focus on this language, freedom, justice, peace. And Ruthie Bloom, in her article in the Jerusalem Post on Friday, makes a good point. He says, wait a minute. That's not what it says. It says freedom, justice, and peace in the light of the vision of the prophets of Israel. Ooh. Nobody wants to talk about that. So there's a big fight in Israel. I do not know where it will go. But here's an example. So when we were at the Knesset, when I was there in Israel two months ago, uh, a bunch of Knesset members came and talked to us, and one of them was Ben Gavir. Well... They've already removed one person from the cabinet, and there are probably some reasons for doing that, although I'm not sure that his plea agreement said that he would never run for office or serve in the government, but the court interpreted it that way, and he was forced to resign from, the, from his minister position. Well, now here's Ben Gavir. He's the internal security minister, and he had the audacity to go up on the Temple Mount like he's done before, and, every, and so now they've filed a court case against him saying, hey, he can't serve in the government because it's not reasonable. Uh, you know, Netanyahu spoke against him in a campaign a couple years ago. So how can he serve in the government with Netanyahu now? I think even the prophet, the light of the prophets in Israel believed in redemption, right? So... Um, And I have Christian friends who just cannot, they are very concerned about Ben Gavir. Um, I, you know, I heard him speak. I know friends of his. Um, 
that will give you a much different opinion. But that doesn't, here's the point. He was elected, and now the court may step in because somebody filed a suit. What, what they, in, the, in the U.S., you could never file a lawsuit like this because you would go into court, and the first question the court would ask, do you have standing? Do you have a dog in this fight that allow you to bring this case? And that's where a lot of cases get thrown out in federal courts and other courts. You don't have standing. You know, you, you don't get to go to court to complain about your neighbor's mortgage being too burdensome. You don't have a dog in that fight. And so here we come down to this other thing, and um, they, the court has said, you don't, anybody can challenge this. So what do they do? They challenge, and they have all these NGOs, and they have left-wing NGOs, and now our president is going, hey, you guys need to do, you shouldn't do this judicial reform. Like it's any of Joe Biden's business. It, well, Joe Biden or whoever is writing the lines for him says this. And so this is tearing Israel apart, and I think this is pretty significant. So listen, I promised I would finish with that. Um, as much as that pains me, because there's a really interesting slide coming. No, I'm just kidding. Um, if I have time, I'll do it midweek this week. Um, it's an insane world. We are uh, converging on the accelerator. Everything is happening all at once. I mean, you, you would not believe there are probably 15 or 20 topics that I didn't even touch on. Um, that's a poor PM at lunch today. She'll hear about them. <laughs> I know, I should live stream lunch, right? Uh, look, um, this, this whole thing with artificial intelligence, and you could see the guy, I think that's the most important part of what I did today, that interview with Eliezer, uh, Ladowski. And by the way, uh, that was done Monday of this week. So it's not like that was an old thing that I pulled off the internet. That, that took place last Monday. And you could see kind of the hope and despair there. And we need to understand as Christians is that we're not people without hope. We're not people who are driven by despair. It's, it's a difficult world. We, we live in the world. But we know how it all works out. But it may be difficult, um, you know, with the things that I'm seeing with Russia and the threats that are being made. You need to make some serious consideration about making some preparation. Because we, we may be going through some pretty difficult times. And the economy is teetering on the brink by everything that I read. Um, and I don't have the answers. <laughs> so somebody asked me this week, how much cash should I have? And I'm like... Um, you know, all of it. <laughs> I don't mean everything you own should be in cash, but, and it may become worthless because they may take control of that. I think they're six, eight months away from doing that realistically. It'll be a major change when it happens. It, it will upend any, everything. The central bank digital currencies and things that are coming. So look, our hope is in the Lord. 
We know the Lord will come back. And when I hear somebody saying, like, what's it going to, when Klaus Schwab says, what's it going to be like in 10 years? I hope it's this glorious millennial kingdom <laughs> that we're in, right? Amen. So look, let's pray. Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you for the hope that you give us. Lord, we pray for um, people that are being impacted by these uh, movements on campus. Lord, we pray that that's real. We pray that you will raise up people to disciple them, teach them the word, because that, that's really what will drive and shape their lives. The, the word is a light onto our path. And that's where we need to focus. So, Lord, give us those opportunities. And um, give us strength and courage and help us to stand firm in our faith. In Jesus' name, amen.